You are listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. This is issue number seven, Detective Work, guest edited by Megan Erdley. This is episode number three, Invisibility as Form. I was thinking about these um, things called nightingale floors. It's like from the 17th century Japanese form that they would build into the architecture of a house. When they would lay the flooring, the nails would be positioned so they would rub up against a joint or a clamp. So if there was an intruder, the floor would creak. And you could live with this because, you know, one could be walking up and down the floors and it would be creaking and you wouldn't notice. But then when you're sleeping and things were quiet, then suddenly just the floor itself would tell you something was awry. I always thought that was really beautiful, like to build that kind of detection into the form itself. I knew very early that I wanted to talk to Janice Kerbel for this issue. Kerbel is an artist who has consistently explored the relationship between planning and action, form and event, and how we can be surprised, maybe even undone, by forms that we already inhabit. Much of her work has centered on the potential of the plan. What I find really intriguing is the way she has designed plans in order to prevent or otherwise disturb chains of events. Back in the late 90s, Kerbel began experimenting with what she called a rigorously researched master plan of how to rob a particular bank in the city of London. In 2000, she published a book called 15 Lombard Street that documents her experiments. At that point, her publisher described the book like this. By observing the daily routine in and around the bank, Kerbel reveals the most detailed security measures such as the exact route and time of money transportation, the location of CCTV cameras in and around the bank, along with the precise floor plans that mark the building's blind spots. Kerbal's meticulous plans include every possible detail required to commit the perfect crime. She got access to the building by claiming that she was an architectural student, but she was not trained as an architect and not really interested in exploiting the building's weak spots. By publishing the plan, she ensured that it could not be enacted. Instead, she produced a new space in which she could explore her own vulnerability within the institution that works to sort money and people and value around the world. In contrast to episode one, where we talk about forensic architecture and their goal to stretch out the time of the event in order to reckon with state terror, here, we will talk about severing, or at least altering, the relationship between the plan and the event. Like the designers of the Nightingale floor that build a sensor into the most mundane part of the house and let it become an unexpected thing, something that surprises the would-be home invader and disrupts their course of action, Kerbal's work invites us to challenge the algorithmic the automated logic of if-then that increasingly underwrites the architecture of predictive policing, biometric gatekeeping, and everyday forms of surveillance. For this episode of Attention, I spoke with Janice Kerbel about the way she uses repetition to create new forms, old forms to create new movements, her relationship to language and writing, and reclaiming small spaces in which we can act freely. Had I been sensible, I think I probably would have planned a bank robbery that was, you know, in my neighborhood. But actually, 
I wanted to plan a bank robbery that had all the kind of glory of a filmic bank robbery. You know, I wanted a big bank that had a lot of money. I didn't want like a kind of um, shitty bank out in the suburbs, you know, that probably would have been easier to rob. But I wanted, you know, that whole kind of balletic structure that you get that kind of grace of an amazing bank robbery that involves access, that involves movement, you know. And I also wanted a bank that had a lot of money. It was really important to me that I wanted to plan the bank robbery as a bank robber would plan a bank robbery because I wanted to see, honestly, I wanted to see what that looked like, what form would be derived out of that process. If I had gone and spoken to the bank, you know, from the very outset, it wasn't going to look like a plan. It was going to be like a representation of a plan, and I wanted, I was really determined to actually produce a plan. So there was no specialized knowledge, there was no contact with the bank. I also wanted to plan this robbery from my lived experience, like as a woman living in London from another place, and to see how that determined what the plan would actually be. So it was really from my own personal experience of the city and the space. So the bank I chose was right in the city centre or in the square mile where the largest banks are held. And the, I had known, I knew that, you know, you needed something like £100,000 or £500,000 just to open an account. So there was significant money that would be moving in and out of there. At that time, you know, like the mid to late 90s, this was a real transition point because there was still paper money that was circulating. But then five years later, there wasn't, you know, not in the same degree. And we couldn't have um, known that. After talking about the selection of a bank, Kerbel reflected on the proximity of her process to architectural learning as her preparations effectively mimicked the work of an architectural student. Here's Kerbel. I noticed that much had been made of this notion that I had posed as an architecture student in order to make that work or begin to plan the bank robbery. And it's funny when I think about it because that was really just an instinctive response in a kind of moment of crisis in one of the only times when I was actually questioned by a security guard. You know, that was quite literally the answer that just popped into my head to say, oh, I was an architecture student that was interested in the building. I was really just out of art school. I was living in London. I wanted to stay in London. And it was really important to me to try and find a way to make work that reflected my lived experience. And I didn't want to make work that was about something. I wanted to make work that was something. And the thing that I needed most was money to survive. So while I didn't ever intend to rob the bank, to plan a bank robbery seemed to be the truest kind of path. You know what I mean? That's what I was thinking about. Like, can my needs generate a form? Is there some potential, you know, in that thought? Kerbal moved between the needs of her own body and a cinematic scale. Here, Kerbal's talking about the tension between representations of bank robberies in cinema and her own imagination of what a robbery might look like. I was really attracted to the scale of a bank robbery as we knew it, as it's represented to us in films or novels. I mean, I'm someone who's like an inveterate planner. Maybe that's like most people who are artists, like you kind of live in this imaginative space a lot of the time. And I wanted to get that imaginative space to see if that had form. So then to plan one that's like grand and huge and beautiful, that would be almost in contrast to the other grand, beautiful one that we're seeing in film, to see those two things in tension, to see what one looked like in relation to the other, I was interested in. 
So did you have an interest in crime fiction or detective work? I did work as a copy editor for a long time, but for um, this very small press. And, you know, occasionally we get crime books that would come through there. So I did have a, a very invested relationship to working with narrative texts and like unpicking them. But at the same time, or really kind of before I was in college, or before I moved to England, I worked summarizing criminal transcripts for cases that were coming up for appeal. So I think those two things have somehow got kind of conflated. I know that in my work, I'm always I'm trying to inhabit kind of formal structure or language that I don't really know or don't really understand. And maybe that comes from this idea of always being an outsider. But if you can just come to grips with the rudiments of something, you also have great freedom to use the building blocks of something because like, you know just enough, but you don't know too much. How much is the question of prediction related to the question of intent? I'm so disinterested in going along with Sherlock Holmes with his path because it's so constructed. So I was thinking about this idea of detective fiction because I admire the role of the detective, but I don't want to follow him or her. I want to like be in that place as opposed to work with this thing because in a detective novel, it's all already constructed for you and you're supposed to go along. It's almost like, again, a representation of an event as opposed to like act the actual event itself. It's like there's only very small spaces that one can act freely, you know? What is the relationship between the temporality of planning and the temporality of event? With this idea of a plan, or and I think this is something that's recurred in a lot of my work, these kinds of transitional forms that embody a sense of promise and have a kind of visual language of their own that is developed out of a kind of practical need, you know? That in relation to the thing that's expected, I find really fascinating. And that's something I've really tried to work with where, you know, is it possible to free a plan from some kind of practical or ideological constraint and see what it is in its own terms? So it's freed from any kind of expected use. So to plan a bank robbery really rigorously, like, and I really did it as earnestly as I could. And then, you know, you put it in the public space, it becomes obsolete from that very moment. But it's really in that obsolescence that I think for me, it became what it wanted to be. And that is freed from, freed from the event itself. As we began to speak about Kerbo's more recent work, she reflected further on the way the plan as a medium is freed from the logic of the singular event. I've returned to Bank Job many times in thinking about where I am in relation to my work now. And something that I thought a lot about after Bank Job and not something I anticipated was when the plan get gets installed, you know, on these cork boards where you only have photographs that were vital to the articulation of the plan. You only have just the barest amount of information, but everything you had there was essential for its inaction. But then when it gets displayed on these corkboards, everything gets pinned up there. Suddenly it had this weird status that you weren't sure if it's a plan for something to be enacted in the future or is it a reconstruction of something that's happened in the past. So it could either be something that comes before or comes after, but it cannot be the thing itself. And I found this really baffling, actually. And that's something I've tried to think about more um, consciously now, I think. There's something about what constitutes an event that Kerbal questions in her work. Is the plan something made in anticipation of an event, or is it the event itself? 
Here, Kerbal refers to events in both senses. Um, the other thing I think about bank job for me is it's the most literal, perhaps, yeah? Um, it is what it says it is. It's the plan for a bank robbery. And I think in many of my more recent works, that's something I've tried to test a bit. You know, I always really want to work with a specific logic or a specific language and to interrogate that language and see what can be born out of it that still bears a relationship to its practice, but separates itself somewhat. I've become a lot more curious about working with live form. And in something like Bank Job, it was the live was the plan. And now that's been loosened somewhat for me, wondering if the articulation of something or the performance of something can also have this transitional or intermediate formal status. I also really love working with the live now. There's something so human about it, you know, and so economical. Where, like, for a lot of time in my work, it's about planning, 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 and making the plan the thing where you're always ruling out the accident. I wanted to know more about how Kerbal thinks about the relationship between accident and script. Here, she commented on the role of writing in her work. And I think that writing's really at the heart of my practice in many ways. It's not always in word form or script form. But it's a very different thing when you're actually working with bodies. Or I'm thinking about another work called Kill the Workers, where I wrote a play for lights, for theater lights. And so I had written this play, which just imagined what the lights could do. But there was no way to test it out. It was only in the act of installing it that I actually saw what it was. And in the same way, you know, I wrote this piece of synchronized swimming. I wrote it, wrote it, wrote it. And it took ages and I didn't know what I was doing. I knew what I wanted to see. I knew the moves. I had learned the language. But I didn't have 24 girls in a pool at my fingertips, you know. So it was only in days before its actual performance that I saw what this thing was. Can you explain what you mean by writing? Yeah, I'm not sure I can. I think that's such an important question, and I wish I could. You know, like when I wrote Fight, which is a fight for 11 people, I wrote it. You know, I wrote it like A punches B in the chest with this kind of fist and using his right hand, and then C punches A. So, you know, is that writing? You know, and I had to write it on a spreadsheet, and I had charts and maps and all of this, but for me that was writing, because I was writing a fight, or scoring a fight. And it was very much in language, because that's the only way I knew how to enact it. Or the synchronized swimming piece that I wrote for 24 women, there is no real language for scoring synchronized swimming, because it's usually taught body to body. So like there is a way, so I did manage to kind of make a notation that's kind of a hybrid of, I don't know if it's like a bit of Laban notation, a bit of Benish notation, a bit of just kind of stick figures, and it's written in beats of eight. So like looking to these different languages as a way to score it, I wanted it to be scored so it could be performed again and again. And the same with the fight. The fight in real time, in real space, would just happen once but I wanted to kind of see if that's something that could be repeated. Kerbal elaborated on the role of documentation and absence in these two pieces and her earlier plans for escaping a bank robbery. The thing about escape is like maybe the link I can make is again going back to this idea of invisibility, something being, you know, not present. There's always like a, there always is an absence in the work, you know, and maybe that's just the nature of, 
these kinds of forms that I'm working with. Like, in, as we said from the beginning, something that the prints that exist for a fight, they look as if they're both a score for a future action or a mapping of something that happened in the past. So what has escaped is the actual event. So it's, everything's eclipsed the event, and what you have is this other form. I think that's very different from sync in a way, because with sync, what I really wanted to see was the performance itself, which, you know, took the body through these series of moves to move from a kind of horizontal plane to a vertical plane, you know, as it moved through this kind of language of synchronized swimming, as the body kind of learned the moves itself. With sync, it really seems like there's writing that's happening in real time. I wanted it to read like a language itself, you know, so like the performance felt like it, like a score. The moves of synchronized swimming are just so weird, you know, it's like you have these bodies which are just displaced, you know, like the body doesn't really belong in water. When it moves in this way, it defies what the water is asking us to do, which is really either float or drown, you know. The body just seems out of place and then suddenly it's doing these very geometric moves in that water. It, you feel as if you should be able to read it. Is there interest in being able to anticipate and recognize patterns? I try to write it with the way that we're familiar with synchronized swimming, which is so pattern-based, right? Where like the individual gets subsumed by the collective, at the same time thinking about what the individual is doing. So like to play with those patterns, to allow them to happen for moments at a time, but then it gets broken. You know, because patterns are forming in ways that are less expected, perhaps. Maybe I'm attracted to forms that are um, already sort of defunct. Like, I think synchronized swimming, as you say, is something which harkens further back than some of the other forms I've worked with. But it's almost like once a form becomes obsolete, maybe we can start to understand it, you know? As with bank job, I planned that bank robbery can you plan a bank robbery anymore? Because paper money isn't in the bank. The way in which you'd plan it now is something that would be so incredibly different. Or, you know, I wrote a um, script for the radio announcement of a baseball game, and that still does happen, but there's still something kind of nostalgic about that form. Fights are so primitive, you know, because the fights I wrote are always unarmed. So there's something so primitive about this. So maybe I'm always looking for forms which are, like, already defunct. I mean, I'm also really interested in this, the, just like the everyday experience of being a displaced body, you know, and there's something so ordinary about that. So to see this body which seems displaced in a pool, I mean, in the way that I wrote the piece, I wanted it to feel both extraordinary and ordinary. I don't know if I achieved that, but that's what I was hoping for. You have been listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Issue 7, Detective Work. Guest edited by Megan Erdley. This was episode number 3, Invisibility as Form. The interview with Janice Kerbel was conducted by Megan Erdley on September 25, 2019. The episode was researched, written, and narrated by Megan Erdley. It was edited by Kurt Gambetta and Joseph Bedford and produced by Ethan Curtis, Joseph Bedford, and Ariana Karadi. Thanks to the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts for their generous support.